Father God, you are glorious, transcendent, and above us, yet imminent, near to us, by your Spirit and your Word. You've revealed yourself clearly in Christ. Help us to see Him clearly in your Word this morning. Lord, grant that through distractions, through sickness and uh, pain and problems that we are facing. Help us to give you our undivided attention. Help us to focus on your gospel of grace and see your love in Christ. Help me as I preach now. Help me as I preach this glorious truth. Strengthen me. Open our ears and our eyes to see Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Our eyes say a lot about us. When you look at a newborn baby, what's something you often hear? He has his father's eyes. The eyes, some say, are the window to the soul. Uh, we do express a ton of emotion through our eyes. You can have a loving look. You can have an angry look. You can look at someone with daggers in your eyes. You can have a creepy stare. Women are a little bit better at discerning that last one than men. Jesus says that the eyes are the lamp of the body. So what we use them for will either bring in light or darkness. When someone's lying, uh, they can't look at another person in the eye. When there's danger, a mother will instinctively look to her children. A child, a daughter, might look to her father, someone she knows is safe. Our eyes say a lot about us. Well, where are you looking? Where are the eyes of your heart focused? Here in John 3, Jesus is directing our gaze to Him. This is now our fourth sermon looking at John 3, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. The topic of their conversation is conversion, being born again. Notice where we've been so far and where we'll be going today. Our eyes have been directed so far, first, to Nicodemus. The conversation starts before the conversation, John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So all eyes start on Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him right away that he has to be born again. So our focus is still very much on him and his need. We saw that when we looked at verses 1 through 3. Nicodemus' need was greater than he thought. He didn't need to be cleaned up. He didn't need just a little help or a little more information. He needed to be born again, born from above. Then our eyes were directed to God's work through the Spirit. Look at verse 5. Nicodemus' need was spiritual, and God provides a spiritual solution. God, by His Spirit, grants new life. We said He grants regeneration. He does this by His grace, His own good pleasure. This is something that happens in us. It's something that happens to us. It's not something we work up in ourselves. It's not something we muster up the strength for. It's a gift of God. So our eyes were directed from Nicodemus to what God does in us, and now Jesus points our eyes from what God's done in us 
to what God does for us. The conversation here shifts. It shifts to Jesus Christ, to the Son of God. Jesus is still talking about the same thing. He's still talking about entrance into the kingdom, conversion, salvation. But now there's a significant shift. He's not talking about something subjective anymore, something experiential. He starts talking about himself. Jesus points Nicodemus from what God's done in us to what God does for us, for our salvation. He points Nicodemus, and he's pointing us to himself, to Christ. Now, the flow of this conversation isn't necessarily how we'd think about it logically. Theologian John Murray, who only had one eye, it's a fun fact, uh, wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Accomplished, then applied. Usually we think about things in that way. They have to be accomplished before they can be applied. You have to cook a meal before you can eat it and enjoy it. All Jesus is doing in this conversation is describing what eating the meal is like before telling him what the meat of the meal is. He's explaining the Spirit's application of redemption to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be raised to new life, regenerated. He's doing that in verses 1 through 11. And now in 12 through 18, he gives him the basis, the grounds, the meat of the issue. He's pointing to himself. Look in verse 12. Look in verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus wonders how Nicodemus is going to believe in the heavenly divine things when he doesn't believe earthly, elementary things. Commentators disagree on what exactly Jesus is talking about with the earthly things. He might be referring to some of the earthly metaphors he's used, water, birth, the wind. Uh, he, he might even be referring back to chapter 2 when he talks about tearing down the earthly, the physical temple. But they agree that what he's about to say is something heavenly. His next words, the rest of the text this morning, contains divine heavenly truth that we must believe. We're actually looking at what's rightly probably the most famous Bible verse. It's on signs at football games under Tim Tebow's eyes. Most people can quote you this verse. And, and I have to confess that I feel quite unworthy to preach about such heavenly things. I don't have anything particularly profound to add to them. But as the focus has shifted in the conversation to Christ, as Jesus himself points Nicodemus there, all I can do is the same thing for us this morning. Call us to look to Christ. Look to Christ. The rest of our text will give us five things we see when we look to Christ. Five things we see when we do look to Christ. The person, the work, the motive, the way, and the promise. We'll see the person, who is Christ, his work, the cross, the motive, his love, the way, his faith or belief, and the promise, his life, eternal life. So first, look to Christ and see him. See the person. 
Look at verse 13 with me. Look down at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus is standing in front of a man, flesh and bone. He's a man he can see, he could reach out and touch him, he can probably smell him. Jesus says, the man you're looking at, Nicodemus, descended from heaven. He says the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man descended from heaven. This man is fully man. That's true. But he's also fully God. In this one person, Christ, is a fully divine nature and a fully human one. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. He took on a nature like yours and like mine. He lived a life like yours and like mine, facing temptation, facing fatigue, facing hunger, facing mocking and bullying. It was a life very much like our own. But he did not sin. Christ in the flesh fulfilled the law by loving and honoring God perfectly his whole life. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and did this in order to redeem flesh. So by fulfilling God's law as man, he earned heaven for man. He's descended from heaven with a purpose to purchase his bride and take her back to heaven with him. As God promises through the prophet Micah, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Heaven, the presence of God, was closed off to man ever since the fall. There was a brick wall, we could say, between God and between man. There's no amount of human effort, no amount of ingenuity could get over that wall. One person had to break through it. Jesus Christ came down for heaven, from heaven to make a way to heaven. That way is himself. In his own body, he's earned heaven. And as the head, he brings his body, the church, with him. So in a way, it's, it's right to say that only one man enters heaven, enters into eternal life. Christ is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 says that the church is his body. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So one ascends to heaven, Christ, the head, and he won't leave his body behind. He won't dwell forever in glory and leave behind a hand, a foot, even the least significant little toe. If you're in Christ, he'll carry you safely to heaven. Praise God. This is why we take church membership so seriously. We take church membership seriously because it's a visible picture of this heavenly reality. It's a, it's a certificate, a visible picture of being a new creation, of being united to Christ and united to one another as a body in Him. So when we join a local church, we're not saying, like the Roman Catholics do, 
that we're making you a Christian, that somehow uh, the church initiates the new birth. It's, all we're saying is that the church has the authority to recognize a new birth. So if you're here this morning and you're not a member of a local church, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not born again. And don't think that joining will make you born again. But if you plan on being in that end times, heavenly congregation, the body of Christ for all eternity, one sign is a desire to join with them now, to commit yourself to love and to care for one another and be cared for by other Christians, other members of that body. If you are a Christian, if you've set your eyes on Christ, on the person of Christ, keep looking to him, to the living person who's ascended to heaven at the right hand of God. He is still a person. He's still a man, still God. And he's not different than he was when he was here in the flesh. Therefore, study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to see who he was then, who he still is now. See the one who loves you even now, just as he loved the disciples then. See the compassion with which he treated the lowly and be comforted. That's how he treats you, Christian. See the harsh truth he spoke to the enemies of the church. He still defends you even now. And hear his warning to those alive during his time. They're as relevant for you now as they were to them. And hear the good news that he preached. It's still for you. Moses came down from Sinai with the law. Jesus descends from far higher, from heaven, with grace. Moses brought the law on tablets of stone to Israel, and Jesus brings good news in his own flesh to the church. So look to Christ. Look to the person of Christ, and look to his great work, the cross. Look to Christ, the person, look to the work, the cross. Might sound a bit odd, but Christ's perfect life wasn't enough to save you. You need his death as well. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus points Nicodemus to his coming death on the cross as something that's necessary for eternal life. Jesus says he must be lifted up. As Nathan mentioned earlier, John uses this phrase lifted up in several times through the gospel, and each one is referring to his death on the cross. John 12 helps us out the most here. John 12, 32 and 33 says, and I, this is Jesus speaking, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus will physically be lifted up on a wooden cross. He compares this to the event that we read, that Nathan read for us earlier in Numbers. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll start towards the end. So Moses prayed for the people who are being attacked by fiery serpents. And the Lord said to Moses, 
make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the similarities between the serpent and Jesus don't stop at just being lifted up onto a pole. Jesus' death, like the serpent, is a way to life. Jesus' death delivers us from death. It's pitiful to think of Israel wandering in the desert. They're wandering because of their own grumbling and their own rebellion. They've disobeyed God numerous times at this point. They're cursed to die because of their disobedience. A whole generation is just waiting to die in the wilderness. We looked with the youth uh, that an average of eight people an hour, seven to eight people an hour, were being buried. They were just under this constant reminder of death as they're wandering in the wilderness, waiting for this whole generation to die out. They're hot. They're tired. They have to pack everything up every so often and move on. And now they're tormented by serpents. And they have to look to this magic pole to save them. But you and I, we are snake-bitten wanderers too. We're born into a snake-bitten world. We feel the fiery bites of sin. We see death around us. And salvation is just the same for us as it was for them. We're to look to the one lifted on the pole. You who feel the sting of sin, look to the one lifted on the pole. You who feel there must be a more modern way, this sounds too silly, look to the one on the pole. You who think it can't be that simple, look to the one on the pole. You who think it's not fair, you who think that you're not worthy, you who think that it doesn't make any sense, look to the one on the pole. On that pole, on the cross, Jesus paid the just penalty for the sins of his people. There on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. And the Son bore it all in full. By his wounds we are healed, the prophet Isaiah says. Or as Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Through the cross, through the substitutionary death of Christ, the conflict between a holy God and sinful, rebellious man is brought to an end. Through the cross, God's made peace with us. The cross is Christ's great work because it brings peace with God. The cross is Christ's great work because it brings God glory. The cross is the great work of God that shows that he's more powerful than sin and death. And so Christ is lifted up in another way on the cross. He's lifted up in the sense that he's exalted, praised, glorified, crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's through the suffering and death of Christ that he achieves the great God-glorifying work of salvation. As Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus was lifted up to glory and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with all authority given to him. Jesus' path to glory was the suffering of the cross. And the servant isn't greater than the master. So consider that your path to glory will also include its fair share of suffering. Christ's death secures forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and peace with God for us. But it doesn't promise you a life free from suffering, free from hardship. In fact, it promises just the opposite. Satan tempted Christ by trying to get him to skip the cross, to circumnavigate, to go around the cross in order to inherit the kingdoms of the world. He wanted him to say, here's glory without that whole suffering part. He'll tempt you with the very same things. He'll present suffering as something to be avoided at all costs, even at the cost of holiness. Just a little sin and you'll find relief from that temptation you're struggling under. It's not that big a deal. Just don't take your faith quite so seriously. You won't face persecution at work or mocking from your family. Just don't love that person quite so much. You won't have to deal with them being ungrateful to you. Friends, the suffering is worth it. The Christian life is a life of glory through suffering. Christ, when he was lifted up, suffered to deliver you from sin. And because Christ suffered to deliver you from sin, it should also teach us not to play around with sin. Don't play with snakes. Only a fool would hear that there's a bronze serpent lifted up that you can look to and be saved and say, cool, I'm going to jump into this snake pit. Snakes are still a danger. They still bite. They still sting. So, friends, flee from sin. Is there a sin that you've been playing with? Is there a sin that's coiled around your leg, that has its fangs sunk into your thigh? Shake it off. Shake that sin, that snake off. Look to Christ and live. Look to Christ and feel that sin drain from your veins. Look to the cross and find the power of sin and the sting of death lose its strange power over you. Christ is lifted up to suffer on the cross. He's lifted up through that to glory. And the last way Christ is lifted up is in the church, through us as a body, as a people, as we faithfully proclaim the gospel. As I was walking around the neighborhood earlier this week, I hear a tap, and it drew my attention to it. Right above me, about, it's a big steeple, a big wooden steeple with a little cross on top. There was a little woodpecker who must have thought it was a tree just fruitlessly tapping away at our steeple. 
I never really paid attention to our steeple, but this got my attention, and I stood there and stared at it for a minute. And isn't our job the same as the woodpeckers? Not to fruitlessly peck away at something, but to draw others' attention to the cross. It would be funny for a Roman to see this instrument of death lifted up, pointed to for all to see. But that instrument of death, through the wisdom of God, has become our boast. So our job isn't to tap our noses on a steeple or wear a cross around our neck or put a Millwood sticker on your computer, but to display the cross in all its power by preaching, by evangelizing, and by loving one another. So we as a church must be committed to the preaching of, the God's, wor- of God's Word, of the preaching specifically of the cross, of the death and resurrection of Christ. We can't get tired week in and week out of gathering and hearing that message proclaimed. And we as individual, individuals must also go and preach that gospel to others. We must keep pointing a lost, suffering, dying world to the cross. There's no other way to escape death. There's no less offensive, no less crazy-sounding message than the gospel of Christ crucified. But that's the message we have to carry to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, even to strangers. Moms and dads, one way you can do this in your own families, in addition to regularly reading Scripture together and praying with your children, is by modeling repentance and faithfully looking to the cross in front of your kids. So dad, mom, when you're bitten by the snake of sin, when you stumble and fall, as you certainly will, don't rush your kids into the tent in the wilderness so that they don't see what's going on. Let them see you look to the cross. Publicly confess in front of them, especially if you've sinned in front of them. Use your words to tell them how you're looking to Christ, how you're trusting in Him for forgiveness. That way, they might know where to look when the pain of their sin sets in. So we proclaim the cross as we preach it, as we evangelize to friends, to our family. We proclaim the power of the cross as we love one another. God's mighty work in Christ is seen in bringing people together. A people, you and me, from different tribes and tongues, from rich, from poor, from privileged to plundered, from abused to the abuser, and reconciles us together in Christ. A unified body, as we've already mentioned in the service this morning, united under Christ our Savior, our head, that forgives, that loves, that welcomes one another into our lives, that bears one another's burdens, that bears one another's problems and struggles, shares them, prays together, hears them, loves through them, is a better display of the cross than any steeple, than any sign, than any picture. Our love is a result of the cross. Our love is a result of God's work on the cross. But His love was its great motive. Our third point this morning is the motive, which is love. Look down, you may not have to, at verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So a few brief comments about this most famous of Bible verses, this most wonderful of Bible verses. First, we don't really know if Jesus said this. As we don't really know if Jesus has stopped talking in verse 15 and John picks up with his own commentary. There were no quotation marks back then, so we don't know where the quote ends and John's own commentary begins. Jesus could be still explaining his work to Nicodemus or John could be explaining it for us. But either way, it's just as authoritative, just as true, just as God-breathed. So whether the quotation marks in your Bible in front of you end at 15 or continue on through 21, it's just as authoritative and just as true. Praise God that it is. Second, look at that word so. Look down and see the word so. For God so loved the world. What that so means, that people used to speak in that way a little bit more than we do today, is thusly, or in this way. In this way, God loved the world. So it's not saying God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. It's probably better to say or to think of it in the way of in this way God loved the world. I think it actually makes the verse all the greater, all the more important. It shows us a, the definitive act of God's love. So rather than saying Chris loved his wife so much that he bought her flowers. It's a little bit more like saying, this act is how Chris loved Denise. He married her. God's love is perfect. It's infinitely great. It doesn't grow. It doesn't swell up. It doesn't well up inside him. And it also doesn't cool. God's love is perfect. It's unchanging. What a comfort that is for you and me, for believers. God's love for you, this instant, is as full and perfect as it ever will be. As much as God will love you in eternity future, He loves you that much right now. Presently, it might be mixed with affliction, it might be mixed with discipline, whereas in the world to come, it will be unmixed, but it's presently just as strong as it will ever be. God's love for you in Christ, believer, could not be greater. It will never cool. It will never leave you nor forsake you. But it will accomplish all it's intended to accomplish in you. It will sanctify and perfect you. What a relief that God's love is unlike our love in this way. Paige and I are expecting our first child in January. We're super excited. I already love this baby so much. She's 24 weeks. Our baby has ears and can hear things. And so I tell our baby that I love it so much. But my love for my baby will undoubtedly ebb and flow. I'm sure it'll grow as I get to know our child, as he or she grows up. I'm sure it'll also sinfully cool at times when I'm dealing with a crying or a disobedient child. I know my love works this way with God. I know that it ebbs and flows with God. There have been times when I've been 
brought to the height of the Mount of Transfiguration, and I've felt so near to God, seemed so close to Him, been so moved by His presence, by His being, that all other things in the world have seemed blotted out by clouds. There are often times when my love is no greater than my love for social media or sin. There are mornings when I'm more drawn to my phone than to God's Word. There are days when I'm so concerned with my own thoughts, my own problems, that hours slip by prayerlessly. How unloving would it be to be sitting next to my wife in silence for hours? There are times when I open God's Word and it bounces off my hard heart. It affects it no more than a Dr. Seuss book would affect my heart. Don't some of the hymns we sing together as a church reflect this? For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I wonder if you feel that like I do sometimes. But praise God that His love is very unlike ours in that way. It's perfect. It's unchanging. Believer, God loved you before the foundation of the world. He loved you as He poured out His wrath that you deserved on His Son. He loves you now, and He will love you forevermore. And the great token of that love, the greatest sign of that love, is His giving of His only Son, the beloved, unique, eternal Son of the Father, was sent willingly to suffer. The crown prince of heaven humbled himself with this motive, love. It wasn't done reluctantly. It wasn't done cruelly. This was a joyful, painful, sacrificial display of God's love. Where do you look to confirm God's love for you? Do you look at your circumstances? Do you look to love from others? Do you look to success, to answered prayers, to the strength of your own love? Do you even look to your own loveliness to see evidence of God's love for you? If we look to these things for assurance of God's love for us, then it'll seem, because all of these things fluctuate, that God's love for us might be fluctuating, might be changing. But if we look to Christ on the cross, we'll find a fixed confirmation of God's love. So fix your eyes there. Let all the changing circumstances of life be nothing but waves that drive you to that fixed rock of Christ, to God, to His love for you displayed once and for all on the cross. Like fighter pilots in bad weather have to keep their eyes fixed on the instruments in front of them, we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. If you look out of the cockpit, might not be sure if that's a cloud or the mountains. Or is that a mountain or is that a cloud? How much more confidence are we to have in Christ? God's love for us displayed there than a pilot on his instruments. God's revealed his love for us in Christ, recorded it in Holy Scripture so that we might have a fixed, unchanging symbol of His fixed, unchanging love. 
the cross also shows us God's love is for the world. That means his general posture towards his own creation is of love. He is love. His eternal plan, his unchanging desire, is of redemption and reconciliation through Christ. And so ours, therefore, ought to be the same. Don't be like Israel and probably Nicodemus hearing Jesus say this, being shocked that God would love Israel? No, God loves the world. This morning in our youth building blocks, we talked about gender and the culture. It's tempting for us when thinking and talking about moral rights and wrongs to lose this posture of love. When you look at your neighbor's yard with a love is love sign, when you see another headline about trans rights, do you react with disdain? Do you wonder how they can be so wrong, how they can be so stupid? Well, as God loves without condoning sin, so we also must love and pity those who are living in rebellion. We have to treat them as image bearers. We have to desire their good and especially desire their salvation. We have to show them hospitality even, friendliness, humbly serving those who disagree, those who even hate us. God, after all, has done the same. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 says. So look to Christ and see God's love. Look to the person, look to the work of Christ, look to the motive, and look by faith. Point four, look by faith. The way we look to Christ is by faith. We look to Christ not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. That word faith, trust, believe, probably in your, our translations, our ESV translation, all those words mean the same thing. It's the same word in the original language, faith, trust, and belief. It's running throughout our passage this morning. And what it is, faith is the instrument, the channel through which God's love, His saving grace flows to us. Faith is the instrument through which God's love flows to us. As we've seen so far in this series on conversion in John 3, God is the one who saves. God sends His Son God redeems a people through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. God regenerates a people to new life through the Son. But it's people, you and me, who believe in the Son and are saved. Faith is a gift from God, but faith itself is not God's action. Faith is our action. Faith is also not the reason God loves you. Faith is not the reason that God loves you. We don't manipulate God into loving us by being faithful. As we said, his love is unchanging. Faith is the gift he's given us through which we know and enjoy his love. Faith, after all, is an outward-looking action. It looks away from itself. It points outward. It puts no hope in itself, in faith itself, in us ourselves, and puts it in Christ. So take your eyes off of yourself and look to Christ. Faith alone saves, apart from any works. It's faith in the person and work of Christ without any addition, without any mixture of works, without any power or ability in ourselves, any effort, any goodness. 
we saw in our first point, the person of Christ, He is good and perfect. He alone is righteous. He's fulfilled the law. So to say that you need Christ to be saved, but also a little bit of works, is to say that Christ in Himself is not quite good enough. It robs Him of the glory He rightly deserves. So trust only and fully in Christ alone for your salvation. All we must do is look to Christ and be saved. We will be saved. But look, we must. It's not the knowledge of the bronze snake on that pole that saved the snake-bitten Israelites. It was turning their eyes to the pole, to the snake that saved them. Likewise, it's not a mere knowledge of Christ that saves. Acknowledging that He exists, even acknowledging what He's done, is not the same as trusting in who He is and what He's done. Have you trusted in Christ? All who do so, all who believe, all who look to Christ will be saved. Notice, too, that in our passage in John 3, the passage is describing a kind of person, not merely an action. Everyone who believes, or whosoever believes, is describing actually a class of person. It's describing believers. So believers are marked by lives of faith, of ongoing trust and repentance. It's not talking about a one-time decision or action. So let believer be your description. Let it be your title. The way that scholar describes one whose life is consumed with academics, an athlete describes one whose life is consumed with his sport, let believer be your title. Let it mark your whole life. Begin and end with each day with a look to Christ. Start and end your day with the Word and with prayer. Set aside time for spiritual disciplines. Donald Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines is a super helpful resource on how to practically do that. Surround yourself with other believers who will point you to Him. Let your faith rest fully and forever on Christ and know that He promises to save all who do. And that brings us to our last point, our shortest point, the promise. John uses many different words in parallel to describe one promise. Look down and see in our passage, have eternal life, should not perish, might be saved, not condemned. All of these are describing the same wonderful promise. The promise of the gospel is that God saves His people. He does so without fail. Not one of His will perish. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is what God's promised us, and it's what we have to offer to a lost world. The promise of eternal life through faith in a crucified Christ. It's a simple message, but it's a message of love. There's no more loving or lovely message for us to hold out to people. So hold it out without being ashamed of it, adorning it not with more or other promises, but with good works. The message needs no amending. The promises need no sprucing up. It's already the greatest news in the world. 
Those who do not believe, our text says, are condemned already. They're the ones rejecting love and salvation. We're the ones to offer it. The world, the media, the culture may think our message is one of condemnation. We know, we must believe that it's one of salvation. Let us look and let us point, therefore, to Christ and see His perfect person, see His great work, see God's unchanging love, see faith as the only way, and see the promise. And take hold of it now. Eternal life, salvation, freedom from the dread of condemnation. These are present promises to be enjoyed now and forevermore. Eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, is seeing, loving, enjoying, befriending, and knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. May the promise of eternal fellowship with God keep your eyes fixed on Christ. The world will tempt us in every way to look to one side or the other. It will offer you every alternative it can think of to eternal life. It will offer you outright wickedness, worldly pleasures, but it will also offer you good things, anything to get you to turn your eyes away from Christ, to distract you from Him, our only hope in life and in death. Your eyes tell a lot about you. Do you have your Father's eyes? Have the eyes of your heart been made new? Are they looking with love on Christ? Are they looking at His person and His work? Are they looking in faith? Pay close attention to where they're looking this week. It'll be a week full of snakes, full of distractions, but the bronze snake remains lifted up high. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Let's pray. Father, you are love, and we praise you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you for revealing your love clearly in Christ, clearly in your word. And we thank you for your grace, that by your grace we might know, understand, and enjoy your love now and forevermore. Fix our eyes on Christ. Fix our hope on Him. Fix our faith on your love. And make us loving people. Grow our hearts. Soften them. Loosen our stiff necks that we might turn to you, look, and live. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.